My global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 109. 132. 182. 139. 147. 103. Following a distinguished career of over two decades, great to have you in Dallas, and congratulations on the book. Great to be here. Thank you. Stealth War. I suspect that you thought about sending a bottle of champagne to Daryl Moley, the general manager of the Houston Rockets. I didn't even know who he was until a week ago. So talk about perfect timing as your book came out. It really was. I mean, it's, it's terrible and sad, but also uh, demonstrates perfectly the entire premise of the book, which was... Uh, what I identified in, in uh, 2014 when I started looking at U.S.-China competition was really this uh, use of financial, economic, and informational relationships by the Chinese Communist Party to really influence our uh, society in, in negative ways, ways that were counter to our principles. There seems to be such oversensitivity on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. At one level, I think, if they had just let this go, but they can't do that. They can't do it. The, the part of the way that they do things is to obfuscate things, and the other part is to control the narrative about China and the Chinese people. So chi the Chinese Communist Party wraps itself in the mantle of the history, the culture, really the vibrancy of the Chinese people. And so in a way, it cloaks itself within the people. And so when you see things that are negative, you tend to not want to criticize the population or the society and by cloaking themselves within the population and the society and really taking uh, China and the Chinese people and repackaging it with the Chinese Communist Party values, that's when you, you really realize that you're dealing with a totalitarian regime, but you know, it's very difficult to, to call them out. You know, we talked just briefly about the NBA, but in your book you have a myriad of examples. I'd love for you to talk about uh, what China did in really <coughs> compelling the firing of an employee at Marriott Corp. Yeah, that's really the iconic, I think, um, incident that uh, that Chinese Communist Party did. So Roy Jones, he was a mid-level employee of the Marriott Corporation. He likes a tweet about Tibet. It was a tweet that was basically um, calling out, um, congratulating Marriott for um, essentially uh, showing Tibet in a different light than China would like. He liked the tweet, not knowing uh, about China, the Chinese Communist Party, or Tibet, uh, really in, in, in understanding geopolitics. And of course, the Shanghai Tourism Bureau found out about this, and the Chinese Communist Party essentially called the Marriott Corporation, told them to seriously deal with the employee and, and apologize. Of course, they did apologize, and they fired uh, Roy Jones a couple of days later. So it is really emblematic. When and did this happen? This happened back in, I believe it was 2017. All right, so that's an example of a corporation, but in my view, even a worst example is what happened with the U.S. government and the Voice of America. Well, that was really a tragedy. You know, the head of the Mandarin Service, uh, Sasha Gong, was uh, interviewing Miles um, um, Gaul, who's a dissident billionaire who lives in the Sherry Netherlands in New York, and essentially um, had negotiated uh, and was approved by the leadership of the Voice of America. Of course, the, the embassy and the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from China called uh, the leadership of Voice of America and essentially uh, threatened them uh, and threatened the relationship that they had with the, with the, um, with the Chinese uh, government and uh, essentially 
not only was the, the broadcast terminated, but uh, she was and, and two other employees were fired over, uh, over it. And essentially, um, Sasha Gong is a dissident. So she spent a year in prison, um, imprisoned by the Chinese Communist Party for fighting for uh, human rights and democracy in China, escaped to the U.S., the U.S., which is supposed to be the land of the, of the free and, and really against uh, you know, violations of human rights and civil liberty, and went to work in the Mandarin service for the Voice of America, thinking that she was doing you know, the, you know, the country's work on and, and spreading the principles and values of democracy and freedom through the Voice of America. And of course, Chinese Communist Party has had such sway now across all ins institutions of democracies that they can reach in and, and essentially have her fired and have the, uh, the broadcast shut down. Miles Goal, by the way, um, very high in, in, uh, in the Chinese government before he left in terms of relationships, personally knew Xi Jinping, personally knew Wang Qishan, and so they were very concerned about what he was going to say on that broadcast. Well, it certainly goes counter to what we think as an American taxpayer, what the Voice of America should be doing. Absolutely. You know, we had Jim Olson here a few weeks ago on the program, and uh, you may remember him. He was a senior person at Central Intelligence Agency, and we asked him, what's the greatest threat? And Jim said, China, China, China. How great of a threat is China from the perspective of espionage? Well, when you have the Ministry of State Security, which is kind of the combination of the CIA and the FBI, and the People's Armed Police, which is, a, which is a large armed force within China that is totally focused on controlling the population. And you have a, a government that's absolutely intent on controlling all of its people, both inside the country and especially when they travel outside the country, because of course they um, you know, require that they monitor each other and report back and report things that are untoward. And so when you have that type of control, and you can go into, say, a student is here in the United States, uh, you can go into the parent's home and put pressure on them, or somebody that's working for a corporation here in the United States, you can go to their family's home and put pressure on them. When you can put that kind of pressure across the entire society, then you can leverage that society to do things that you know, are ostensibly in the name of the nation, that you would say. But what that, what that means when you combine the fact that the Chinese Communist Party controls the government, controls the university system, controls uh, the businesses, controls essentially everything in the society, you can turn each of those institutions not, on, not into things like us that promote the rule-based system, but are essentially used by the Chinese Communist Party to coerce and, and, and otherwise gain um, advantage at the expense of democracies. I'm glad you brought up the students because, I mean, there are literally hundreds. How many Chinese students Almost are Almost a half million in our university, so much so that it amounts to somewhere between 15 and 20 billion dollars in tuition fees each year for those universities. And so that's one of the ways, by the way, that the Chinese Communist Party puts pressure on universities if they're doing something they don't want. They'll call up the president and they'll say, hey, we're going to pull every student out, which in a lot of times uh, puts the university in the red in terms of their budget. Now, we talk a lot about soft power in this country, the term that Joseph Nye used. What about these Confucius Institutes? I remember a few years ago, there were a number of them here in the state of Texas. UT, Austin recently closed its. Why are they being closed? The Confucius Institutes, which are run by the Hanban, which are part of the United Front Work Department, essentially the United Front Work Department is a propaganda arm of the Chinese Communist Party. So they're not just there to teach Chinese, they're also there to teach a brand of culture and history of the Chinese people in China 
that the Chinese Communist Party wants, and it's also there to look out for the narrative uh, that China doesn't want. And so it's there to also to be counter to the idea of freedom of expression or freedom of thought within a university system and portray and drive the, both the narratives and the propaganda that the Chinese Communist Party wants. And so it's a very powerful um, tool. It's subtle, though, because um, you know the way that they do it is actually quite professionally done across the board. I read that there's even a Confucius Institute in Houston in the high school district. They're very pervasive, not at all education levels, but they're anywhere that the Chinese Communist Party can get a foothold, it will try to do so. Why aren't universities more aware of this? I think what we try to do um, as Americans is embrace other cultures and other societies. And so we do that with China, and we do that with the Chinese people. The Chinese people are wonderful people. They're hardworking. They're resilient. They are great people as people, but they are part of a, of a system that the Chinese Communist Party essentially controls them. So when we see them and when we interact with them, you know, we want to treat them just like people that come from any other democratic country, but of course they don't come from a democratic country. Now, if we were to come into contact with uh, North Koreans or, or Iranians or Russians that were acting on behalf of the government, I think it'd be, we'd be more aware because it's a little bit different environment with those countries. But with China, it has such a great way of portraying itself as something other than what it is. And what I'm talking about is the Chinese Communist Party. And the people are great people. And so it, it becomes very difficult to delineate between is this person just being friendly with me or is some, there's some ulterior motive. Of course, they're not working as spies. But when they get pressure put on them by their family because the Ministry of State Security has paid the family a visit, then of course they're it, more than willing to do what they then want. Then it develops. Right. Let's spend a few minutes talking about their impact on the economy and specifically the Belt and Road Initiative. What is that? So the Belt and Road Initiative is a couple things. One, it's a program to offload China's excess capacity in building uh, infrastructure. Now they've built up uh, a bunch of infrastructure within the country that's quite frankly not used. And so they wanted to have a way to export some of that excess capacity because it's really about maintaining jobs. But it's also about maintaining uh, control outside of China's borders. And so the Belt and Road Initiative has a land component that goes from China through Central Asia to Eastern Europe, all the way into the heart of Europe. It's got a maritime version that goes, uh, again, uh, through the um, Suez Canal all the way um, to uh, Greece at the Port of Piraeus. And then it also has a digital uh, Silk Road component where they're laying fiber and building 5G networks. So the idea is they control the logistics, the shipping, the telecommunications, and as these things get built out, they'll also have manufacturing hubs and, and e-commerce uh, via their digital Silk Road. So it, it's really a comprehensive way to build out their economic, financial, and informational relationships throughout the Eurasian landmass in, in Northern Africa. Uh, they're also bringing in Latin America now and other elements of Asia. So it's really a comprehensive strategy, almost like um, you know, the Mongols, but not no horses and arrows. It's just about commerce. And as we can see with MBA and with Roy Jones, commerce doesn't come without its hooks. Well, when you talk about hooks, the example that you talk about in your book, Stealth War, is Sri Lanka. 
Sri Lanka is a, a great place where you know they built a port. Um, of course, uh, the the leader of Sri Lanka at the time was richly rewarded. Uh, essentially, corrupt uh, he got corrupt payoffs, but at the same time, they put in way too much infrastructure in the port of Hambantota that the Sri Lankan government couldn't afford to pay off. And so, rather than um, uh, rather than paying them off, China just took the port for 99 years. This is. What they're doing throughout the Belt and Road Initiative is really creating these deals, and they're, they're obfuscated, and that's the whole idea behind Stealth War. They hide everything that they do, so you don't actually know the details of the, of the contracts. One of the things that, that we're trying to do from the State Department now is to try to educate some of these countries that may get into these bad deals with China to know that, hey, these are some of the terms of the deals that, that you may not know about. For example, one of the things they do, they say, anybody that works on this project has to speak Chinese. Right, and of course, then you can't find any Chinese speakers in the country, and so they import a bunch of Chinese laborers to do it. So they don't even uh, get the labor in their in their country for their people. So there's a lot of things that are in the deal, and it then ends up becoming a way for um, the Chinese Communist Party to gain territory without firing a shot. Well, tell us how we financed the ghost cities. Well, not just the ghost cities, uh, but the islands in the South China Sea. Those, so there's two ways that we did that. Once during the recovery, and we say we, what we're talking about, U.S. banks, U.S. banks, and U.S. Uh, institutional pension investors, funds. pension funds. Jeez. So U.S. banks essentially sent a bunch of money uh, during the recovery to uh, build real estate in China. There's dozens of ghost cities, cities that could essentially house uh, three to five million people, and uh, none of our banks, I don't think know how they're going to get that money back and in fact those cities still aren't filled today and so there's a lot of real estate that because China controls the market of real estate they can keep the level the, the price level high so they can keep it on the books but in reality there's nobody living there and there's no income coming out of those and we're not going to be able to see and, and we're not going to see any of that money on the on the uh, institutional investor side you know the China Communication Construction Company essentially had a dredging unit that built all the uh, built all the islands in the South China Sea. The, that China Communication Construction Company had uh, bonds that were bought by U.S. institutional investors. So when we were sending uh, ships within 12 nautical miles of uh, of those islands on freedom of navigation operations, at the same time, United States taxpayers in their retirement funds were essentially helping pay for these islands. Now, another example you gave in your book, which sent shivers down my spine, we're about 30 miles away from Lockheed's facility where the F-35 is being built. But we need, some, we need China to build that plane. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, circuit board, a number of uh, components of the F-35, we can't manufacture without China, quite frankly. We offloaded, uh, when they entered the WTO, over 70,000 factories, lost 3.4 million manufacturing jobs. We don't manufacture mi microelectronics. Bell Labs used to be the state of uh, the art with telecommunications. It was uh, spun out of AT&T, became Lucent, and then was swallowed up by Nokia as Huawei began to put pressure everywhere on telecommunications companies by subsidizing. I've talked to uh, small telecommunications providers that had deals that essentially Huawei came in and took the deal away by giving the equipment away for free. So. What they'll do is they'll give the equipment away for free, and then they'll make the telecommunications companies pay uh, for software upgrades, and they claw their money back later. But in the meantime, the companies that had those contracts, I mean, they've, they've just been devastated. The subtitle of your book is How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. 
Should it not be while America's elite profited? Well, I think it is uh, how it profited. But really, when the Cold War ended, we believed in open wealth leads to open markets, leads to wealth, and wealth leads to democracy. And we, we framed our foreign policy in such a way so that the elites could, be, could make money on these ideas. And so not only were they making money, but in their minds, they were making the world safe for democracy by pursuing globalization and the internet. So what do we do? Are the tariffs a smart way to go? Tariffs are one way, but they need to be made permanent. Business is all about certainty, so the businesses need to know that those tariffs aren't going away. Before China entered the WTO, they had a vote every single year in the Congress on most favored nation trading status. And really, the Congress was looking at, you know, are they following human rights? Are they following civil liberties? Are they following the rule of law? If they're not, why should we take the tariffs off? Because they're actually countering the international order. But we also need to invest in our country. We stopped investing in infrastructure. We're five trillion in arrears. We stopped investing in the industrial base. Like I said, we lost over 70,000 factories. We stopped investing in STEM education. Now we have 152,000 students, Chinese students in STEM programs in the United States. And we stopped investing in research and development. We stopped investing in basic science research. We were investing at 2% of GDP. Now it's less than 0.7. And by the way, because China's in all our labs, they're in all our research facilities, um, they so get access to that. How do we wake up the American public? That's why I got out of the Air Force. I could have uh, kept going. I had to write this book. This is what I've been working on uh, for the last five years, trying to uncover everything they're doing. We need an awakening in this country, and we need Americans to stand up, to fight back, to fight back for their country. It's not coming in by Marines storming ashore. We're not getting bombers overhead. They're coming right to you through your internet, through um, the things that you buy online through uh, your everyday uh, activity. General, I want to thank you so much for being our guest on Global IQ. Thank you for listening, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And special thanks to my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith. And with that, I ask, what's your Global IQ?